0: Please.
1: Another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Doctor GX Wolfei. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at FunkinStuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First guide to Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am delighted to welcome to the Truth and the Mothership R&B singer Stacey Ladisaw-Jackson. Just 12 years old when her debut album came out in 1979, during the next 10 years she'd go on to record 9 more LPs, with 4 reaching the R&B top 20. During that highly successful period, often working with producer Narada Michael Alden, she notched a dozen top 15 R&B hits that included Love on a Two-Way Street, Let Me Be Your Angel, Nail it to the wall and the Johnny Gill duets, perfect combination. And where do we go from here? Retiring from popular music while still in her early 20s, she turned her life's focus toward family, church, and spirituality, authoring her autobiography in 2011 called I Am Not the Same Girl Renewed. Stacy, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you?
0: I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you this evening?
1: I'm doing well. <laughs> thank you again for, uh, Gracing us with your presence, much appreciated.
0: Yes, it's good to be with you guys. <laughs>
1: and where are you talking to us from today?
0: I am in my home. Uh, we reside uh, in the suburbs, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was of course, and uh, my family is still here and never, ever wanted to move, just decided to stay here.
1: <laughs> well i can understand uh i i didn't get to see dc until um you know just a few years back because i'm from the west coast but now i'm on the east coast since two uh tw- um, 2006 and uh seeing it after that for the first time was a thrill so i've been back a couple of times and i enjoy dc very much
0: oh cool yes yeah, it's, it's dc's changed a lot like i said i was wondering uh, with my family and friends still being here. I've, I've always been a we've always been a close-knit family and um just decided to stay in the area. And um I now have two grandchildren that I adore. <laughs> it's a different kind of love. Oh my gosh. I have been retired from the music industry. Uh wow. I was 20, I believe I was 24 because my husband and I just got married at 25 and uh, we've been married now for 31 years that's a long time isn't it
1: <laughs> yeah congratulations on that and congratulations on the grandkids and all of that that's fantastic um, well so Stacy what um, what drew you to music in the first place though and, and you know did you have an aha moment when you were very young that, hey, I'm gonna do this.
0: Actually, no, I did not. Uh, it didn't happen that way at all for me. You know, everyone's story's different. And and you know, you know there are a lot of aspiring singers, raptors, rappers, actors, but mine wasn't never to sing professionally. You know, my mother sang with Marvin Gaye here in DC um he had a local group they actually went to school together that's how my story began through my mom and um at the time uh she was actually the lead singer in the group that Marvin Gaye uh, formed and um so Marvin Gaye rest his soul, he was the keyboard in the group, player in the group. And my mother, uh, like I said, she was a singer. Her, her stage name was Sandra Storm. And, um, so yeah, my mother was a really, really, really good singer, but she never really, uh, her career never, it, it just never blossomed. You know, she just basically was a, um, local artist. And, um, By the time I was six years old, I remember that uh, my mother used to sing a lot in the kitchen and I would kind of mimic the things that she sang. And, you know, she kind of recognized that there was something there. And by the time I was nine years old, uh, my sister asked me to sing a song at her school. They were having a talent show. And I was like, no, I don't think that's something I want to do. Uh, I'm okay with singing at home, you know, but I don't want to sing on the stage. <laughs> I don't want to do it in that way. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm just envisioning all these people on the stage and in, in, in high school, you know. But um, I remember very clearly that my mother told me that she would give me ten dollars if I'd sing at the talent show and i thought about it for a minute and i was like you know what i can go to the toy store and i can buy some toys with that buddy (laughs) so yes she bribed me to um to sing at my sister's uh talent show as i said before and and after that we began to get phone calls my parents of course began to get phone calls uh, from people that were having talent shows, fashion shows, and different events in the Washington DC area. And uh, they wanted me to to sing. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't want to do it once again. It was it was never, you know, it was never a dream of mine to be a professional singer on that level. But I think it was my mother's dream. In fact, I know it was her dream. And uh, I think that my mom was trying to live her dream through me because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a star and she wanted to, you know, she, she wanted to go in a studio and record albums. She didn't do any of that. So like I said, for her, I think living her dream through me, it was, maybe it was just, you know, it was just her, what she wanted to do. And, and as I said before, You know, being a child star at such a young age, at the age of twelve, um, I didn't have a clue, you know, what I was what was ahead of me, of course. Um, but as I as I look back on the opportunities and um the things that I was able to uh do and accomplish and and it, it was truly amazing, you know, I'll never forget. Uh I was out Side playing with my friends at 14 years old and um my our house was always the house where you know people all my friends would gather at my in my home and and uh we played volleyball kickball and and um we would actually have talent shows in my basement and um, that was something that, that I started I I I like to sing and I had a few friends that acted some friends wanted to dance, some friends wanted to rap, some friends wanted to sing along with me. And um, like I said, at 14, uh, I had already been signed to Atlantic at 12, is when I recorded their first album over at Atlantic Records. But um, at 14, uh, I'll never forget, I got the phone call from Michael Jackson's management company. And they wanted me to open for the Jacksons in 1981 For the Triumph Tour. And I was like, no, absolutely no. (laughs) This is not what I want to do. You know, and I was like, I'm sitting here thinking about all these people that are going to be there, you know, because Michael Jackson was such a huge star. I mean, who wouldn't want that opportunity, you know, to open for the Jacksons? But at 14, I wasn't. I mean, who would think about that? You know, who would even begin to um, think about such an opportunity to not only meet Michael Jackson, but to travel with him? And the tour was for, wow, it was 13 weeks, and we went to 36 different cities. And uh, during that time, I literally had to come out of school because my records were being played on the radio. And then came the bullying so I went through a lot, but, um, it was, it was, it was a tremendous, um, opportunity. And, and that was the beginning of my journey, I would say. Um,
1: let, having, let, let, yeah. let me jump in, uh, yeah. if I could, uh, Stacy, thank you for that. Um, yeah. Wow. So that first record, um, was Van McCoy, uh, was part of that, uh, before, yeah uh mm-hmm. narada got involved. Mm-hmm. So um, do you remember uh, what was that first experience like when you finally got in a studio and and do you remember anything about Van McCoy?
0: I remember, oh my gosh, he was one of the nicest people I'd ever met. Um, I'd met lots of during that time, when my career began, I met lots of i I started started meeting celebrities and um, songwriters, producers. And um, Van McCoy was different. He just had such a nice, warm, welcoming personality. Uh, he was so easy to work with. And I'll never forget um, one of the things that was funny to me uh, when I think about the time in in the studio, I finished the entire album in three days. Um, but the earphones, my head was so small that the earphones kept falling forward. So <laughs> they, I had to keep on making adjustments. <laughs> it was so funny, obviously they didn't have, you know, children's earphones and the microphone because, you know, uh, that that studio was, was for adults. But so my situation was always odd because I was just a little girl at 12 years old in the studio. Recording an album. And um, it was amazing. When I when I even think about it now, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I did that? <laughs> hmm. But by the grace of God, you know, um, like I said, Narda Michael Walden, he was he was my, I would say I'd work. I had the opportunity to work with different songwriters and producers along the way. But Narda, oh, my gosh, he was in a class of his own. Um, and he and I are still friends today. We we talk periodically, but uh, the other songwriters and producers I work with didn't establish a relationship with him at all. It was just Narada.
1: Yeah, it seemed like he was definitely um, like maybe a, a mentor, a musical mentor, um, yeah, for sure. And uh, mm-hmm. such a difference between that first record was like very old fashioned and sounding, and you know, and then he came in. <laughs> And you were all of a sudden, you were just completely contemporary and just a whole different thing.
0: Yes, indeed. And, you know, I, I was just talking about just sharing this story not long ago because it was amazing how, you know, it's so amazing how things unfold and how God illustrates things and, and you know, I'm sorry, orchestrates things and places different people in your life and kind of put the pieces together put of the puzzle, you know, and, um, I'll never forget when I signed with Atlantic Records, um, the first album, When You're Young and In Love, many people thought that that was like, um, I'm sorry, let let me retract this statement. Many people thought that Let Me Be Your Angel was my first album, but it was not. When You're Young and In Love was my very first album, but because of the songs, they would call them bubblegum songs, because they had to be age appropriate, you know, for a 12 year old um, little girl, you know, they had to be written, you know, for me and, and they were. But I remember very clearly that the radio stations really weren't playing the songs. So by the time uh, Henry Allen got his so he was the president of Atlantic Cotillion Records. And Henry was the one that found Narda Michael Walden. And I don't know how, but he, I'll never forget, Henry called our home one day. And uh, he says, there's this songwriter, producer. He's actually a drummer, but he writes and produces songs. And um, I want Stacy and him to connect. So Narda, they flew Narda to our home. Narda at the time resided in San Francisco and I think he so does if I'm not mistaken. Um but yeah Narda came to our home in DC and Narda literally wrote let me be your angel in our living room. Yeah. He wrote he wrote he wrote the course in our living room and he started putting together the verses of the song and I didn't have a clue what he was doing, but he would just say to me, repeat, repeat this after me. So he was going over the key to make sure the key was correct. He was making sure the chorus was correct. And he put the song together piece by piece. So when he left our home, he went back to San Francisco and he pieced it all together and it became, let me be your angel. And um, obviously it was one of my biggest records and, and, Uh, still to this day um thankfully i'm so so grateful that uh radio stations still play that song after what oh my gosh 40 years are you kidding me
1: yeah and where'd the time go right it's unbelievable um i mean i remember hearing it too it doesn't seem like all that time but um what was it like what was it like stacy when you first heard yourself on the radio
0: you know it's, it's it's funny when i when i even when I think about it sometimes, just last night, my husband and I had gone out and we were uh, going out to grab something to eat and Where Do We Go From Here it came on the radio. And I was like, wow, they're still playing these songs. It's amazing after four years, man. But the f- the very first time I heard um Let Me Be Your Angel, I would say. I was at home and the radio was on, the radio station was was playing my song, and I was like, That's me. That's my record. <laughs> so I that that was a big moment for me, I'll say. And um it was amazing, you know, because I, I like I said before, even at the age of I was 12 and a half, almost 13, that was that was huge to hear your song on the radio, you know. But uh, yeah. It, it was pretty cool. <laughs>
1: And how much uh time did you have to put in to prepare for you know a stage show and um you know were you just spending all of your hours outside of maybe school or tutoring you know on the music
0: actually uh i did a lot of rehearsing at home my mom made sure that i did that um i had a lot of rehearsals like I said, in which I was going over dance steps with the choreographer, uh, going over the the lyrics and the melody and, and you know, that type of thing. But um, I guess for me, the most difficult thing during that particular time was being in school and having to navigate my way through that time. Because it was, I had a challenging time in school. I was picked on. I was bullied um, because of me being so light-skinned with green eyes. You know, I I am mixed. um, Canadian, Caucasian, and uh, African-American. So I did have a tough time, as I said before. And, And my mother was the one that, Realized that uh, one day I came home from school and uh, she knew that something was was wrong. And, you know, a mother knows we we know these things with our children. And um, so it it went on for a while and I didn't say anything to her because I didn't really know how to handle it, you know. And um, so I remember very clearly that my mother went up to the school. And she talked to this one girl in particular that she used to, <laughs> oh my gosh, she used to pull my braids in school. And she sat right behind me in school, in the in the classroom. And um I would tell the teacher, but not a lot, because I felt like if I if I told, then she was really gonna beat me up, you know? And uh, so, like I said, my mom um went to the school and and she talked to the little girl and she talked to the teacher, and um Needless to say, um, that ended immediately. She never picked with me anymore. And, and I guess that's why to this day, I have such a passion um, for people and children in general that are bullied because I know what it's like firsthand. You know, so I started a, a mentoring program in which I work with children ages 12 through 18. And uh, I love working with kids. I love helping i love assisting in whatever way i can
1: <laughs> that's fantastic turning that you know negative experience into a, a very positive one
0: absolutely
1: definitely the way to go so um love hearing that um you know and now we're brought in like just such crackerjack musicians too i mean on those records uh, you had just amazing players and it was so finely polished and honed and Just, Mm -hmm. you know, um, immaculate uh, pop dance R&B material. Um, And uh, that third record with Love on a Two-Way Street, I mean, that really was a smash. Um, You know, and, uh, you know, that record cover with you, that was a really cute photo, (laughs) you know, and uh, uh, just really, I think you really hit your full stride with, with that one.
0: I think so, too. I think I think around that time I was finally got my niche. You know, I was I was trying to trying to discover, you know, um, I guess my my strong points in my in my voice and kind of I guess my voice was still developing, of course. But uh, as far as the songs were concerned, I, I, one thing I remember that that used to really bug me is that I, I really didn't have any, very very little say in the song selections. And I never thought that that was fair because I was like, I'm 16 years old. How come I can't, you know, pick and choose some songs for my album? Because I recorded one album a year. Um, over at Atlantic, I recorded um, six albums. And then I moved over to Motown and recorded four albums. So that was a total of 10 albums all together during my career but uh yeah that that was one of the things that really bothered me as a recording artist you know and of course you know the music industry is different today but um i think probably my age was a factor you know i was so young maybe they felt like she doesn't know what song's are best for her but i knew because i had an ear to hear a hit record i knew I felt like I knew when I heard a song, in fact, there was one song in particular that um, the record label did not want me to record, and it was entitled Miracles. And to me, it was one of the most beautiful songs I'd ever heard. And um, I'm so glad that they listened to us, meaning my mother and I and a few other people, um we suggested that song and they were like, Well, I don't think this song is good enough, blah 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 blah. But they ended up letting me record it. And um it, it did quite well. It's a beautiful song, it still is. Uh, yeah, that too.
1: was on the 16 album, I see, and it got to number 13. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have felt great since you were behind it like that.
0: Yes, it did. <laughs>
1: Indication, right?
0: Yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh and of course Love on a way uh, two way street got to number two. Um, I guess that was your you, know, you later on got a number one, but um it was your highest charting on your own without Johnny Gill. Yes. Um and um, you know, it's so much fun looking at uh your covers now, um, with all the 10 records and just seeing how you know you change you matured. You matured in your look and you and your themes and the titles and uh, the sound and your singing voice. it's just really fascinating to see that evolution. Um, yeah,
0: yeah right? it, it really was. It was like I said it was such an interesting time in my life because uh, my voice was continuing to mature um and therefore this in my age and the song selections began to change. Uh, Because the music industry was changing. And so therefore, um, I think it was around the time I was probably maybe 21 or 22 is when it was brought to my attention that um, because of the music industry changing, that the song selections needed to be more sexual and my dressing needed to Be more sexual, and that's when I really, really, really was like, "This is not the direction that I'm, I'm going in." And um, I had already recorded. I'm sorry, I was, I was, I was probably yeah, 21, 22. So I didn't record the duet with Johnny Gill. Where we go from here? That was the number one song that we recorded on my album. Um. So, yeah, that it, it was such an interesting time for me because I had um, made a decision that if that's the route that I had to go down to stay um, relevant or to for my career to go to the next place, as they would say, then this is what you have to do. And I remember very clearly saying to my management company, and I had a, a conversation with um, some people over at Motown, and I was like, this is not for me. You know, I, I had to start dressing more provocatively, and it just I, I wasn't raised that way, and it's just it just wasn't who I was, and it's still not who I am today. So that's why I chose to walk away from a number one song. And many people were like, "Who walks away from a number one song?" And I said, "Me." You know, and and you know, I just feel like, you know, how do I say this? With, uh, I have to be mindful of what I say because people sometimes take your words and miscrew them, and they just kind of twist them around. say, so, you know, you have this all this craziness on the on the internet, but. It disturbs me, I'll just say this. It disturbs me when I hear and see um some of the songs, the R and B songs that are played on radio stations today. Uh and, and I and I say this out of love, you know. Um there are so many, so many gifted young singers, female singers especially that dress in such a way where, hmm, it, it, it disturbs me, it disturbs me. And, and I have to be careful how I say what I want to say, but um, music when back in the seventies, eighties, music used to be about that the industry, I'm sorry, used to be about singing. It used to be about, you know, love songs, staying together, working things out. But the music that we hear on the radio today, it's it's totally opposite. And um, that's why I know for me, when I get in my car, I choose to listen to what I want to listen to. I love Air Supply. I love um, Celine Dion. I love Aretha Franklin. I love Natalie Cole. I love the OJs. I, I love many of the songs that back then they still are beautiful songs. When you when you listen to them on the radio today, and even a lot of the songs that Narda wrote and produced for Mariah Carey, those were beautiful songs. And the staying power is there and in my opinion that's what separates some of the real music from what we are hearing today and i don't care at this point you know who disagrees with what i'm saying but it's 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 gotten away from real singing it's gotten away from you know ballads have gotten away from love the meaning of love what 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 is what is love what do we why do we even sing about love w- you know it's 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 pretty interesting you know and it's a conversation i think that someone needs to have mm-hmm. because whatever happened to real r&b music what happened to it is it ever going to come back that's my question Will it ever come back to where it was before
1: well i because, don't know if, it, I, I uh, don't know if it, i've i don't know if it will through the industry but i mean there's certainly a lot of love for it out there and people seeking it through the Internet, wherever way they can. I and, so. uh, you know, I mean, all the viewers of this program are evidence of that, too. And, uh, you know, I'm all about preserving those legacies and and educating young people to what they might be missing uh, if they don't get exposed, you know. That's so, cool.
0: Absolutely. Um, you're doing that because there needs to be more people like you because it's like wow when i turn on the radio sometimes i'm like are you kidding me but i was
1: just curious stacy when you were young though uh, who were some of your biggest singing influences
0: oh my gosh i used to love listening to Natalie uh i i had the honor of meeting her uh i believe it was maybe 1981 or 82 Um, She was an outstanding woman. She was so funny. She loved to laugh. Um, She had a beautiful personality. And um, I just always enjoyed her music. I enjoyed her style of singing. Um, Of course, uh, Michael Jackson, of course, who doesn't, who didn't listen, still doesn't listen and love Michael Jackson's music. In my opinion, there will never be another Michael Jackson. Um, I listened to a lot of um, Gladys Knight songs as well. My mother was a huge fan of Gladys Knight. And um, so those were the type of songs that, you know, that uh, we listened to a lot. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, now since you were on that Triumph tour and Michael Jackson, you know, above anybody knows what it's like to be a child star. Was he able to impart any advice to you uh, being so young or... No.
0: Actually, um, Michael was so quiet and I was very quiet. I mean, I was 14 when I had the honor of um, opening for him. So we did go backstage after he performed. We um, they allowed us to go into his dressing room to speak to him on numerous occasions. And I would go over to him and and talk to him, just for, basically to speak to him and take pictures. But um, he really didn't give me any advice. Um, no, I wish I wish he had. <laughs> I wish he had. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I got up there on pure guts, and um, I, I, I sang, and and all of the venues that we performed at were like stadium type venues, like 20,000 seaters, so it it was all, like I said, it was was huge, that was a huge opportunity for me
1: How did you get over your stage fright?
0: I never did (laughs) I never, ever got over it Um, I just, I dealt with it the best way I could you know, but I I can understand how some people you know um, could you know i don't know if 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 i would say if i didn't have christ as being my foundation i could have you know strayed in a in a, a a a bad path because there were there were drugs all around you know i could never remember um i'm sorry i can never forget we had gone to i think it was jamaica or trinidad we as soon as we off the plane there was someone there and they were offering us drugs, and and it like I said, it, between the after parties and things, I I never participated. Even when I reached the age of eighteen, nineteen, twenty-one, it was just not. That was just something I never wanted to do. Um, and so I was pretty much a square. I would say in the music business, you know, because certain things I just didn't want to participate in. So maybe. Maybe at the end of the day, I've thought about it a few times. I said, well, maybe it wasn't for me. Because as I said before, I made the the decision to walk away from it at the age of 25. And thanks be to God, I was able to retire from the music industry. And I married Kevin and um, we have two businesses God has blessed us with and i never had to go back i never had to work so i'm I'm grateful for that i'm very grateful and i don't take it for granted
1: when, when i'm sorry when, when you were when you made that switch to motown um that record i'm not the same girl which ended up being a title of your book um that record didn't chart and i was wondering what happened there did the label take like songs maybe you had already done and put out that record and then you were doing new stuff on motown or what happened in that transition from atlantic to motown
0: it was that's a good question because i often wonder myself it was that was a weird time that was a very weird time um i remember when i left atlantic records and um motown was the label i'll never forget my manager at the time contacted me and said that motown was interested in signing me because my contract with atlantic was 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 up it had inspired and um so yeah that that's an interesting question because so much foolishness went on and that's another reason why i guess i kind of began to lose even more interest For the industry, because my management at the time, I was beat out of a lot of money. And I'm sure you've heard this story a lot of times. Um, The record label told me I was in the hole. I was in the red. And therefore, um, I was not going to be receiving royalties, which which we thought was absurd. um, Because... My records were being played and my records were selling on, you know, but that's what we were told. So lo and behold, here it is now, what, 30, over over 30 years, as I said before, 40 years later. And do you believe that I just started receiving royalties last year? Is that not terrible?
1: Pretty bad why did it finally start happening just because a certain amount of time went by or?
0: No. And I, and, and, and I hate to even think about it sometimes because I'm sorry. I didn't even want to talk about this, but um, that just, it just goes to show how the music industry is not what a lot of people think it is. All they see is the glitter and the glitz and, you know, the performing and, you know the the you know all they see is one side of it but when it comes to the the business part of the industry my parents never knew anything about the industry my father worked at the government printing office my mother was a stay-at-home mom so because of us not knowing these things and the terms and conditions of contracts i was beat out of a lot of money And, um, so it was just brought to my attention two years ago that I was owed a lot of money from these labels. And, um, I just finally started getting royalties after 40 years. That's terrible. That's absolutely terrible because I worked from the time I was 12 to 25 and, um, they really, they really took advantage of us not
1: knowing. Mm, especially, I hate to hear that of a minor, you know, of a kid, basically. Just mm-hmm. un- unconscionable, you know?
0: Yeah. It was uh, terrible.
1: Glad to hear you're getting some justice now, better late than never, I guess. Um, but, um, I saw also when you went over to Motown, you got exposed to, you know, really top producers like Kashif and Leon Silvers and these kinds of guys. Um, Do you remember working with any of those guys at all?
0: I remember working with Kashif. um, Quite honestly speaking, God rest his soul, that was not the best relationship. Um, That didn't go quite well. Um, That was who they chose to write and produce songs for me. But um, I'll never forget one of the things that, you know, because she said to me, he was like, well, I want you to sing it this way. Sing it like Janet Jackson. And I was like, I don't mean any harm, but you want me to sing it like Janet Jackson? I'm not Janet Jackson. So I just kind of felt like that was ridiculous for him to say that. So quite naturally, it turned me off. And I'm not saying that in an arrogant, boastful way. But I thought that it was a bit disrespectful. You know, because my I had already established my own style. So there was no need for me to try and sound like anyone else or be like anyone else. Um, But yeah, that to me, that was not a good mix. Not
1: at all. Yeah, I was going to say, jump into my life. Definitely was a Janet Jackson type
0: of. Mm -hmm. It was not. I didn't. didn't, There were so many songs, unfortunately. There were so many songs. And I'm, I'm just being transparent that I did not want to sing or record. And I know that it came across on the songs. It came across on the albums. You know, there was a song in particular that I really, really, really loved. And it was entitled Let Me Take You Down. It was written and produced by um, Lou Pace, if I'm not mistaken. And the way we came across that song was quite amazing. Um, We went to Florida. That's where he at home there and his big beautiful recording studio was there and uh he had this song he said i want you to hear this song and i listened to it and i fell in love with it immediately and um so that to me was one of the best songs that i recorded and that was pretty much really at the peak of my voice if you've ever heard that song it's, before.
1: A, no, it's an excellent soul ballad that yeah. song
0: absolutely beautiful And um, at that time, during that time I was at Motown, Motown was not as supportive as they could have been, Um, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if it was Shanice Wilson or I don't know who it was, but they were they the, the interest was not where it could have been. That could have been a huge record for me. But they weren't promoting it like they could have. And once again, I was let down because I felt like this is such a beautiful song. Why aren't you guys behind it? Why aren't you guys making sure it gets played on the radio? Why aren't you guys making sure, you know, there's a video? They they didn't give me a video for it. Like I said before, I, I got a lot of bad breaks in the industry. You know, how, how was it that you have these beautiful songs in the label, will not pay for a video for the artist? That was ridiculous. That should have come out of the budget. But they used to tell me things, well, there's not enough money in the budget for a video. And I was just so disappointed because I was like, that makes no sense. So then here comes, where do we go? I'm sorry, What You Need. Now that's a whole different story. (laughs) I never liked that song. I didn't feel like that was a good fit for me. It was too pop. Um, did not like it at all, but it was a song that they made me record. So when you're in a situation like that, right, you're signed to a label, the label says, well, these are the songs you're going to record for this album and you have no input. You know, it, it was, it was the whole thing that, that, that time for me was, it was, it was difficult, you know, and, um,
1: you, you also worked with, you did a cover of Ain't No Mountain High Enough with Howard Hewitt.
0: Mm-hmm. He was fun to work with. He was pretty, pretty nice person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that the video, I thought that the song went quite well. But once again, there was no video for it. There was very, very little support from the record label. So radio stations did not play it much. Same thing. Same yeah, situation.
1: That was not even a single, that one. Uh,
0: nope, there yeah. was not was not even a single. You're right. It was not a single. So therefore, it would not have been a video. But I just never understood why they didn't pick that for a single. So by the time, as I said before, what you need was chosen as a single, when I found that out, I was like, are you kidding me? Why would they choose that for a single? This song should not be a single. It should just be an album cut. So, that song, they did, you know, uh, agreed to do a video, and um, it was amazing how this came to part. Um, Puffy, his friend, who his nickname was Hot Dog. Hot Dog was the choreographer for that song, video, right? So, Puffy just happened to be there with Hot Dog. They were friends, and uh, at the time, Puffy worked in the mailroom for Motown Records, so he had not even been discovered, right? So, like I said before, Hot Dog was trying to teach me the dance steps, and I couldn't quite get them down right. I had a rough time because you know I-, I used to dance, but that was not my strong point. Um. So, yeah, Puffy comes over to me. He's like, he no, he comes over. Yeah, well, hot dog's right there on one side of me. And then Puffy comes over to the other side. I was like, I got it, man. I'll, I'll work with her. I'll teach her how to do it. So he starts to teach me how to do these dance steps, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm finally getting it down. <laughs> so it worked out quite well. And... um so, yeah, that was actually Puffy's, from what I was told, It was Puffy's first time being in an, uh, a video. It was mine. And I never even heard a word from Puffy. I reached out to him several times. I was like, oh, my gosh. Really?
1: What <laughs> Was he even known as Puffy then? I'm sorry? Was he even known as Puffy at that time?
0: Yeah, I think that was his nickname, Puffy Combs. They used to call it Sean Puffy Combs. But uh, I reached out to him on social media. I tried to reach out to him through a mutual friend. And this was during the time when my career was probably on a down slope, right? And that's when his began to rise. And I was kind of thinking, well, maybe he can help me, you know, uh, with these record company people but it didn't work out but it was it was everything that happened was supposed to happen that's the way i see it you know
1: there's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview just continue on to the next part of the episode also be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on patreon or consider donating at FunkinStuff.net.